0: Good afternoon. It is good to see you all here today. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Honored to have you. If you're a guest or visitor with us here today and I haven't had a chance to meet you, I would love to meet you before you leave. If you have a moment uh, after the service, I'll be down front. I would be honored if you have time just to introduce yourself to me. My name is Jason. I serve as a pastor here, Um, I, I serve among uh, five other elders uh, of the church but more importantly I'm, I'm a member of this church and um, I say this often I would be a member of this church even if I wasn't the pastor this is a great place uh, to plug in and join uh, but it is not a perfect place and so if you're looking for that place it's down the road there's a church down there somewhere evidently that's like perfect and got it all together it's not here uh, we got a bunch of messes and a bunch of brokenness here but Jesus is meeting us in our messes and bringing his perfect redeeming love yeah, to our lives, and so we'd love to have you come on board and become part of Solid Rock Church. Um, a couple of announcements real quick. Um, first of all, I wanted to clear up um, on commitment cards. We had Commitment Sunday last Sunday, a big day, an exciting day. Um, we're going to be uh, collecting commitment cards uh, for a couple more Sundays. I know some people um, weren't here and didn't get it in. so a couple of questions I want to clear up, though. Um, first of all, um, so the filling out the card, there's a blank in here. That represents the total amount that you feel like God is calling you and or your family to give over the course of 12 months. So it's not a monthly amount or weekly amount. It's the total for 12 months. And it's, not, um, and it's not a designated fund. I want to make sure we know how this is working here. We're not doing a designated fund for the new building with a thermometer that we're going to watch go up. Here's what we're doing. It's one fund, one initiative we're throwing in together. So everything that we collect on Sunday mornings goes in together. Uh, we're running a very streamlined operating budget, and so everything that is excess above and beyond gets transferred to new building. Okay, so that's how that works. Um, and so, for example, last year uh, we had a, a $355,000 operating and teams ministry budget. We only spent about 325 to 330 of that, uh, but we brought in 711. So, all of that excess goes into new building. And so um, I just want to clear that up and make sure everybody knows how that works. Um, also, I was asked this week, hey, I think I made a mistake or I need to update. How do I do that? Again, you can just turn in a new commitment card. If a new one comes in, we'll just assume it's an update or a correction. So feel free over the next couple of weeks um, to drop those in the brown boxes. We won't be doing like a formal time in our service. That was last week, but you can turn those in over the next few weeks. And so I just wanted to clear that up, make sure um, and again, if you have any remaining questions, please grab myself, another staff member or elder. We'd be glad to help you out. Um, second announcement, uh, men in the room. So uh, men's and men, women's ministry uh, changed a little bit last year. We used to meet monthly in large gatherings in this room, and, uh, and for a couple of reasons we changed that. One, our students needed a place to meet. And so we've given this room to our students on Wednesday night, um, but second of all, Um, we felt the need to go a little bit deeper in our relationships with one another and deeper in our time in the word together so we've moved our men's and women's ministry into small group settings okay and so that's been off and running now since uh, August September going really well however when we made that change we knew it was going to kind of lead a a void if you will in terms of just fellowship and getting together so the way we are um, way we're addressing that is with men's and women's retreats and so we Announced that last year, but this spring will be the first men's and women's retreats that we do here at the church. And so, uh, men, you're first up. The weekend after Easter, 6th and 7th, uh, we're going to take a retreat. We're going to go down to Glen Rose to Riverbend Retreat Center. Um, It's $55 for the weekend. That's your lodging and your food. Um, We need you to register online. Registrations are open. Um, And here's here's a couple things. So, um, if you are a male, man, and you consider Solid Rock your church home. I want you there. Okay? I need you to be there. This is going to be monumental for a couple reasons. One, it's our first time to do this, so I'd love to have everybody there. Second of all, and more importantly, when, when any one person draws away from the busyness uh, and the stress of life to draw near to the Lord in fellowship with other believers, God shows up and does something amazing, and I want you to be a part of that, guys. I really do. I want you to be a part of this men's retreat so when you hear that don't think we're just going to be sitting around a circle cross-legged sharing our feelings okay we're going to be doing some man stuff there's going to be a fire right there's going to be some man stuff going on uh, but more importantly we're going to draw away as the men of the church together to meet with each other and to meet with the lord that he might do an amazing work in our lives and then ladies your retreat will be uh, right after that we'll be giving you details on that so men never mind scratch that women Go ahead and put it on your husband's calendar. The weekend after Easter, sign him up for the men's retreat coming up on April 6th and 7th. All right, you guys ready to get started? Good. I am super excited about uh, this new sermon series that we're starting today entitled The Gospel Story. Uh, We're going to be in Luke 24 today primarily. If you want to go ahead and turn there, feel free to do that while I share a little bit about where we're going to be going. So over the course of the next 11 or so weeks, we're going to go through the Bible from cover to cover. Okay? Cover to cover. Now, this is not a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book study. There's a time and a place for that. What we are doing is we are going to go through the Bible from beginning to end, looking at the primary story of the Bible. Okay? And so we're going to start that journey Next week in the book of Genesis, and today, really, we're going to talk overview of what that story is and why that story matters to you. Today, uh, we'll be primarily in Luke 24 after the resurrection. Now, a couple things. Um, there's, a, there's an author and pastor by the name of Bill Clem, and uh, he's written a book called Disciple. It's a great book. Uh, if you're looking for a, a book to read on discipleship, it's great. It's fantastic. Um, what, what Bill Clem talks about when he talks about the story of the Bible is this, that once you know the main story of the Bible, you begin to look at all the other stories differently. Matter of fact, you, don't, you no longer look at them as stories, but you begin to look at them as small scenes in one major epic story. And so, for example, I'll give you just, just some examples this morning of how this works. If you open your Bible to the book of Genesis and read the first three chapters, the beginning of your Bible, and then flip to the far end of your Bible, the book of Revelation, and and read the last three chapters, you're going to find several unmistakable, remarkable, undeniable parallels in the story. I'll give you a few of them just just so we can kind of be on the same page here. So for example, Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. Book of Revelation, God creates the new heavens and earth. Chapter 2 in Genesis, you find the tree of life. Guess what you find in the last chapter of Revelation? Tree of life. Genesis chapter 2, you find the first marriage, Adam and Eve. In Revelation 19, guess what you find? The last marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the first part of 3, there's no death. Guess what happens in the second to last chapter of the book of Revelation? God puts death to death. Moving further along in the book of Genesis, when you get to like chapter 9, 10, and 11, because of man's rebellious heart and desire to be autonomous and self-governing, God disperses the nations. It's the story of the city and the Tower of Babel. Revelation 4. 5, chapter 7, chapter 14, guess what God is doing? He's restoring the nations back to himself. And so story after story, scene after scene in the Bible, we see this clear evidence. God's telling one remarkable story. What, what Bill Clem calls this is the arc of the story. The beginning is not in jeopardy. God was in control. The end is not in jeopardy, right? This is a quote from... Uh, from Bill Clem. He says this, the story of the Bible is about redemption. The story of the Bible is never at risk. The story isn't at what's risk. The people are. And so when we take a step back and we see the Bible that way and we see the sovereign hand of God writing one story, not just in the Bible, but one story in the universe, it changes things. Now, in our day and time, there are a lot of misunderstandings about the Bible that we're going to clear up throughout this sermon series. I'll give you a few of them. One misunderstanding is that this is merely just a book of rules, right? Just a book of rules. Um, if, you, if you can obey all the rules, you get on good, God's good side, and then he does stuff for you. And then the problem is, we go to the Bible, we open it looking for this sets of hoops to jump through to make God happy with me so that he will make me rich and healthy, and we don't find it. So then we conclude what? The Bible must be irrelevant. We stick it on a shelf and we don't read it. We say it's just too confusing. Another example is that we think that the Bible is a book of heroes. And so we go to the book to, to find heroes and examples on how to live life. And we go to guys like David and we read about David, this great king and conquer and leader. And we keep reading the story and all of a sudden we find that David commits adultery and murder. And the guy we thought was a hero is actually scandalous, lying, cheating, sinner, just like us. And we conclude, well, it's not a book of heroes then, right? So let's put it on the shelf. It's irrelevant. I think this third and final misunderstanding I would mention here today is this, that somehow the Bible is a self-help book about how to fix my life. And so we open it up trying to find that, right? How can I I find help on getting a better job? I can't find that in it. Where do I find that? How do I I find a verse about how to make my day better and to make my children more obedient and my wife more respectful and my my husband more loving and I'm reading this self-help book and I can't find it? So we conclude the Bible is irrelevant and what do we do with it? We put it on our shelf and say, it's just too confusing. I don't get it. My hope, and I believe what God wants to do through this sermon series, is to not only clear up those misunderstandings, but give every person a a more deep and more profound understanding of God's story so that when you open it up, you get it. You open up to the book of Jonah, you realize, oh, this is not really a story about a big fish. It's a story about redemption. When you open up to the story about Jericho and walls falling down, you realize, oh, this isn't primarily a story about walls falling down. This is about redemption. When you open a, the Bible to a story about the Apostle Paul being shipwrecked and all these things happen to you, you realize, oh, this is a part of the redemption story. Paul's not the main character. David's not the main character. Jonah's not the main character. Abraham's not the main character. Then who is? who is? In Luke chapter 24, we're going to pick up uh, the story that we find in the Gospels. The scene is the resurrection. Early on the resurrection morning, uh, several of the ladies go to the tomb, uh, and they find that the tomb is empty, and not only that, there is an angel there uh, who's like, hey, what are you doing here? Like, of course he's not in here. He resurrected from the, remember that whole resurrection thing? Yeah, it actually happened. He's not here. So the ladies go running to where the, the, the 11, because Judas is bailed, so the 12 have become 11. They're in the upper room. They run back and report to the disciples what they saw. And so a couple of the disciples take off, uh, Peter and John. And if you read about it from John's gospel, he outruns Peter. I don't know if that matters, but he does. He just wants you to know he's faster. So John gets to the tomb. It's empty. Peter comes trailing in behind. Oh my gosh, it's empty. So they go back to the upper room and report what happened. Meanwhile, there are two other disciples who are headed to Emmaus. And these two guys are confused. They're a little saddened and frustrated about what happened to Jesus. They're actually in despair. They've begun to lose hope. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. In Luke chapter 24, starting in verse... 18. Two disciples are walking. Jesus walks right up next to them, is overhearing their conversation, and he begins to ask them questions about what they're talking about. Verse 18. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Jesus, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things and they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth a man who was a prophet mighty indeed in deed and word before God and all the people now stop for just a minute this is already dripping with all kinds of irony okay these two guys are walking in despair talking about everything that happened to Jesus Jesus walks up and starts talking to them and what is their question are you just a visitor do you not know what just happened to Jesus? And, right, they're talking to him. Right? They're talking to Jesus about what happened to Jesus, asking Jesus, don't you know what happened to Jesus? But they don't get it. They're blind. Right? And, and, the, and the second irony here is, is this, that what, what they're accusing Jesus is, of is not understanding what went on. And we're going to see in just a moment, it's actually them who don't understand. These guys who don't understand what actually took place. Now let's keep reading. So, verse 21, Pick 20, he continues on, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Now, we hear third day, and all of a sudden bells start going off, right? Ding, 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 third day. That's when he's supposed to raise from the dead. Moreover, verse 22, some some women from our company, they amazed us. They they were at the tomb early in the morning, and, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Ding, 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 ding. The evidence is pointing to a resurrection on the third day, but but these guys are oblivious, right? Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, these guys are recounting the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. They have all the facts straight for the most part, right? They know Jesus suffered, that he died, that he was buried, and now his tomb is empty. So the problem isn't that they don't have the knowledge or the data of what happened. Something else is going on. So look at how Jesus answers them. Verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's start with what Jesus first said. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Now that word foolish does not mean lack of knowledge it means lack of understanding there's a difference it wasn't that these guys didn't have the data okay they had the information for the most part correct they knew the old testament they knew about what the prophet said about the christ the problem was they didn't understand it and therefore they didn't believe Two things I see here. First of all, they misunderstood who Jesus was. Did you see what they called him? A prophet, mighty indeed, right? Now Jesus corrects that because he said, didn't you know that the Christ had to suffer? And that word Christ is, is the idea of the Messiah, the promised one who Right, who the prophets talked about would come, that it wasn't just a, a fancy teacher who would come and redeem Israel, it wasn't just a prophet who would come and redeem Israel, but the Son of God would come, the Christ, the Messiah, and redeem Israel. But the thing that these guys were lacking there in the last verse, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted for them the scriptures and the things concerning himself so what did Jesus do with these guys he said guys let's do a little Bible study together and let's look at the Old Testament the writing of Moses was also called the law the first five books of the Old Testament the prophets encompass most of the historical narratives and of course the major and minor prophets so he's referring to most of the Old Testament here with these guys guys come on let's open the scriptures together and he interpreted for them the stories the scenes of the Old Testament concerning whom himself now that's different so as they went across the stories of the old testament they looked at abraham and and isaac and jacob and and moses and david and and jonah and isaiah and ezekiel at every stop along the way jesus showed them that these were actually stories about him and he opened up their mind and their eyes to see now this is a big moment for these guys. They kind of flip out. Woo, woo, this is Jesus, the resurrected Savior, right here. We get it now, we see it. So they take off, okay? And they head to the upper room where the 11 are, and they just they run in. Can't wait to share with the other 11. Whew. Remember what the lady said this morning? The tomb was empty. The angel spoke. Peter and John, you went, you found it. We just saw him. He appeared to us on the road. And, and as they're telling this story, guess who shows up? Jesus, just. Shows up, doesn't say that they open the door and let him in, he just walks into their midst and he's there. It kind of freaks them out. They, first they think he's like a ghost or apparition or some sort, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second, check this out, touch my hands. These are, tell you what, let's eat dinner. Ghosts don't eat dinner, let's have a meal, let's share some fish here together. I am the resurrected Christ. Now we're going to pick the story back up with what Jesus says to the 11. Verse 44, Luke 24. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So what Jesus is saying is, remember guys, before I died, I told you all this mess. I told you everything was going to happen. It was going to get ugly. It was going to get bloody. It was going to get dark. Okay? So remember, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So what happened to Jesus was not the unraveling of God's plans or the derailing of what God wanted to do. It was the fulfillment of what God wanted to do. The the, the death of Jesus on the cross, that was on purpose. He was buried on purpose. He resurrected on purpose. Jesus is saying, listen, you guys are in despair right now because of what happened to me, and you didn't get it. That's what success looks like. What you're interpreting is failure and hopelessness. God's saying, what are you talking about? Go back and read Isaiah. Go back and read the Law and the Prophets. What happened to me is the the unfolding sovereign plan of God. It was supposed to happen this way. It had to happen this way. Why? Because it was a fulfillment of all that God had promised. Well, when did God promise this? You see what Jesus does? Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is a really significant reference. When the Jews look at the Old Testament, which is their Bible, by the way, they, they, they break it up into three categories. Okay? We've already talked about the Moses, the writings of Moses or the law, the first five books. Then you've got historical narrative along with the major and minor prophets. They called that whole section the prophets. Then you had the writings, which were the poetic works like Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Job. And so what Jesus just said is, hey guys, come here. I'm not just going to show you a couple of Bible stories. The whole Old Testament is pointing to this moment. Now think about that. If what Jesus is claiming is true, then the climax of your Bible is the resurrection of Jesus, not his second coming. That's the resolution of the climax. You you tracking with me? So what Jesus is saying is this last three days that has brought you to a halt and, and left you feeling despair and hopelessness and like the story was coming unraveled, it's actually the climax of the story. This is what the Bible has been looking forward to. This is what God has been building up to and ramping up to. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of his son is the climax of the story. And so Jesus opened up the Old Testament, and he went through all of it, and he showed them, guys, this is all pointing to this moment in time. The story's about me. So what Jesus is saying is true then Moses isn't the hero of the story. Abraham's not the hero of the story. Isaac and Jacob aren't heroes of the story. Jonah's not the hero of the story. David's not the hero of the story. The disciples aren't the heroes of the story. Paul is not the hero of the story. Who's the hero? Jesus is. The Bible is a redemption story, a gospel story, and the hero of the story is Jesus. Think about it. We'll just walk through some examples now. okay? I'll just give you a few and we'll look at some scripture. The Bible shows us Adam created in the image of God. A- Adam comes to us before sin is like a perfect prototype of what an image bearer is supposed to look like. okay? But then what happens? He sins and the image of God is marred and distorted. 1 Corinthians says that Jesus comes to us as a better Adam. How about Abraham right? Abraham, God makes this promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all nations through you. And then the very next part of the story, Abraham's lying to to make sure that nobody tries to take his wife from him. Lousy hero, right? So what does Galatians 3 tell us? Paul says, you know who who the actual hero of Abraham's story is? Jesus. How about Moses, right? This dynamic, Great leader who leads the people of God out of captivity and slavery and bondage and through the wilderness and into the promised land. Whoa, 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 tap the brakes. He doesn't actually make it into the promised land, does he? Through Moses, God delivers the law and tablets, reflecting his character to his people. But Moses doesn't cross the Jordan to the promised land. Neither does his generation. Why? Because they lack trust and faith. Well, how about David. David comes onto the scene, right? Before David was Saul, and he was, he was a, just a malicious and selfish king, and so David comes onto the scene as a better king for us, yet we already talked about it. That ends in what? Adultery and murder, and so the New Testament tells us what? In Matthew 5, that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law of Moses, but to fulfill it, and Jesus has come to us as a better king than David. The Old Testament after King David uh, looks like the story begins to unravel, as the kingdom gets divided into two kingdoms. And by the time you get to the Old Testament, we're left with 400 years of what seems to be silence. It almost feels like a dead end after you read the book of Malachi in your Old Testament. You're like, now what? Where's the hope now? And so Jesus comes onto the scene. Listen to me. I don't mean this metaphorically. I mean it literally. The author of the story, this is what the gospels are in your Bible. The author of the story steps into the story. Think about that. The one who is writing, the sovereign hand that is writing the story of redemption through your Bible, in Matthew, when Jesus is born, it's like he unzips the fabric of time and just steps into the story. And he comes to us to be a better Adam. He comes to us to fulfill the promise to Abraham. He comes to us to, to display and fulfill the character of God that we couldn't by obeying the commandments. He comes to us as a better king. He comes to us to break the silence. And at just the right moment, the climax of the story is when Jesus, the Son of God, willingly, knowingly, on purpose, goes to the cross for you and me and dies for us. And they bury him. And when he resurrects, you need to get this, when he resurrects, that is the climax of the story. What's the conflict of the story? Satan versus God. Sin and death, overcoming man. And what happens in the resurrection is God says, I win. He doesn't win, I win. Sin and death don't win. I win. And then what happens after the resurrection is the resolution of that climax. Think about it. After the resurrection, you got, I don't know, 11 half-hearted disciples meeting in an upper room. And in Acts chapter 11, it becomes 100, or excuse me, Acts chapter 1, it becomes 120. Acts chapter 2, it becomes 3,000. By Acts chapter 5, it's 5,000. By the end of the first century, after the book of Revelation was written, you've got about 25,000. By the time you get to the beginning of the fourth century, you've got 20 million Christians on the face of the earth and today estimated around 3 billion. And between 180 and 200,000 new Christians daily are being added to the kingdom. That's the resolution of the resurrection. That's the power of the resurrection playing out. Now, let's make this practical for a moment. If the Bible then isn't about Jonah and Abraham and Moses and Solomon and the disciples, it's primarily about Jesus. What does that tell us about our own lives? In the same way, these are just small scenes that make up the bigger story. Guess what? Your life is a small scene as well. Now, in our sinfulness, we try to make our stories the main thing, the main attraction, right? My life is the main thing happening here on earth, right? It's my story. You're welcome to be a part of it as long as you don't tread on my plans. This is my life. I'll live it how I want to live it. I'll build my kingdom. And God says, oh, tap the brakes there, buddy. Your life is like a hiccup in eternity. Your life is like, we're compared to like a grain of sand back in Genesis. That's your life. In the epic redemption story. It's a small scene. And in the same way that Jesus is the hero of the Bible narrative, guess what? Jesus wants to be the hero of your story too. And, and, and the sooner that you can get to that point, the better. Where you step back and you go, you know what? I just want to be a supporting character in my life. I want you to be the hero. You to be the author. I want you to script this thing out. Are you sure? We're going to go places that you probably wouldn't have thought we would go. Yes, let's go. We're going to have conversations that you probably wouldn't have had. Yeah, let's go. You be the hero. I'll follow wherever you lead. Four major areas of life that this will impact. When and if you get to this place where you see your life as a scene in God's epic redemption story. Let's talk about marriage. When I get to this place where I see my life As a small scene in God's epic redemption story, it will transform my marriage. I think my wife is in the room. She's going to hear this, okay? Here's how it will transform my marriage. I will start serving my wife for the sake of giving, not getting. You hear the difference, right? A lot of men in the room. Some of us, we serve to get, right? We serve to... to to butter her up and to win her over and to get stuff from her. But, But when I start seeing, okay, my life is just a small scene. Jesus is the hero. Now something shifts and changes in my heart, and I now want to serve to give, not to get. How about parenting? How does this transform my parenting? When I see my life as a small scene in God's epic story, it transforms my parenting. I start modeling repentance, and I show my boys how to own sin, and I quit trying to maintain my hero status. Do you know what I'm talking about, right, parents? Where our kids think that we've hung the moon, we know everything, we're the strongest, right? I, I no longer have to try to maintain that and convince my boys that I'm a hero. I can say, you know what, I'm not a hero, I'm like, David, I'm a failure. I make a lousy hero. You know who the hero is? Jesus is. He's the hero. Not daddy. You see how that transforms things? Friendships. I'm no longer surrounding myself with people who make me feel good about myself, who make my life feel better and and have something to offer me right, people I have affinity with or have, you know, personality chemistry with or have things in common with, now I'm pursuing unity with people who don't look like me, who don't act like me, people who get on my nerves, people who have different skin color, come from different socioeconomic background. Why? Because it's not about me, it's about him. He's gathering the nations to himself, and I'm just one small scene in that story, right? Right? It's not about how comfortable I am. It's about me seeing that my life is not about me. It's about him. And now I pursue unity for his sake. How about our workplace? A lot of hardworking people here in the room. A lot of hardworking people. The question isn't, do you work hard? It's not, are you striving to be ethical at work? The question is, why are you striving for those things? When I see my life as a small scene in God's epic redemption story, it will transform my work. I will begin to work honestly, ethically, and diligently out of a newfound desire to submit to authority. Think about that. Out of this newfound desire to submit to authority and a desire to be a benefit to others rather than working hard for personal gain, recognition, or accolades. You see the difference? In both stories, we're working hard. One's working hard to build my kingdom, and the other one is working hard to build his kingdom. Right? Both scenarios were raising, raising kids, right? One is raising kids to build my kingdom, and I'm the hero of the story, and the other one is to raise kids of his kingdom, and he's the hero of the story. In one scenario, I'm loving my wife for what she can give to me and how she can benefit me and my little kingdom and my world and make me feel better. In another scenario, I'm loving my wife. Why? So that she'll understand the love of Jesus better and she'll live for his kingdom, not mine. So we're going to take this journey together. Next week we're going to start in the book of Genesis. We'll probably just start with the first couple of chapters. Looking at God's beautiful creation before we marred it with sin. And we're going to walk through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and looking at this amazing, epic redemption story we call The gospel. I'm gonna invite our, um, our worship team to come back up and our prayer partners um, to be available for you. Uh, we'll have prayer partners at the front and at the back of the room. If you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus and him alone for your salvation, your hope, your peace, your joy, I'm gonna pray for you in a minute that you'll make that decision today. That God will give you the courage and the faith to step out, Maybe come talk to one of our prayer partners and just say, hey, would you, would you pray for me? Would you tell me more about becoming a Christian? If there's anything else going on in your life, you're walking through something hard or you know somebody who is and you want a team of people praying for you in that, if you'll, again, come to one of our prayer partners, let us pray over you in that. They'd be honored to talk with you and pray with you. So let's pray together and let's prepare to respond. And Father, we thank you for Opening our eyes, God. Far too often we walk through (coughs) this story we call life. Blind and ignorant, God. A lot like the two disciples heading to Emmaus. We have all the data. We may even know all the right answers for Bible trivia. But still could be completely missing it. God, thank you for... Luke 24, and how Jesus opens up not just the eyes of the disciples, but opens up our eyes as well to see that the Bible is about him. God, this morning we ask that you would do a work in us. And now we are going to move into a time of responding. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move through this room. Speak to us, God. Stir our hearts, oh God. Work in us, we pray, in Jesus' powerful name.